Hello everyone, my name is Eric Snader, aka Brother Snades, and welcome back to yet another wild, messy, infinite love podcast episode. We are on to episode number 32, which is, as always, crazy to me to think, and this podcast is a very special podcast that I'm bringing you because it's a podcast where it's not just me talking. I actually had one of my dear, dear friends onto the podcast today. Um, his name is Ben Conrad. He is a wonderful friend who I've known since middle school, high school years. Um, our friendship goes way, way back. Since then, he's graduated um, from college at Lycoming College with a religion and biblical studies degree. Um, he has also recently completed a Master of Arts program at um, at a seminary in central Pennsylvania. He is on his way to getting a doctorate now, um, which is very exciting. But the main reason I had him on the podcast this week is to talk about the church. Um, one of the things that Ben has been doing a lot of over the past couple of years is working with a group called Fresh Expressions, which is a a Christian group that is working towards helping church members and communities to expand their boundaries when it comes to what is church and how do we do church? As someone who comes out of the Christian household or the Christian religion, that obviously is a conversation that's really important to my heart and really near and dear to my heart uh, because it's absolutely crucial, whether you're Christian or not, to be having these conversations of what it what does it mean to really authentically be in community and connection with other people, because that's really what this conversation morphs into. So I'm really excited to share it with you. Um, my apologies for not having a podcast over the past couple of weeks. Um, it's been heavy. It's been a heavy couple of weeks, um, to say the least, with everything going on in our country, um, with the protests that are swarming across cities in America, um, seeking justice for people like George Floyd, for people like Breonna Taylor, um, for people like Ahmed Arbery. It's been heavy. Not only that, but everything else surrounding COVID-19 that continues to weigh on people's hearts and minds. It is heavy stuff, folks. Um, so, I mean, part of my processing has been a lack of being able to write podcasts on my own. Um, so I'm switching focus a little bit and trying to create more podcasts that are conversation-based with other people. Um, not only is that something that is really life-giving to me, but I, I think it creates a better space for you um, where it's not just me a middle-class white male talking. Um, so I'm really excited to bring this podcast to you. I have a couple other really great interviews lined up to share with you. Um, but in all the midst of this, know that my heart is with you. Know that my thoughts are with you um, because it's a heavy, heavy time. Um, so what better time to talk about what it means to be in community with other people. 
what it means to be in authentic connection with other people. So here is my conversation with Ben Conrad. I apologize for the abruptness of it, but we just sort of launched right into it. So you'll notice at the very beginning of this interview, I asked, what are some of the changes that you'd like to see? We were we were having a little bit of a conversation about his particular church community when I asked that question. So when you hear that question, think of it as what are some of the changes that you see are really important for the church as a whole to make, for us as communities as a whole to make. But without further ado, Ben Conrad on Rethinking Church. Let's talk about it. So what are some of those changes that you see are important to make? Number one most concrete change is use this time to do as much shift of power from paid positions to laity, empowering lady, training lady as much as possible. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what I believe to be not only a more healthy church structure, but when you're talking about a participatory community of faith, that's how you do it. I, I don't think people who don't have responsibility are going to come and ask for responsibility as much if they think that church is a place where you come and you sit in a pew and you kind of let it happen to you rather than helping to provide a community. Now we have a, a wonderful congregation that I'm a part of right now that's doing a lot of volunteer on the side. So we have a lot of people who are like, you know, you're all-star volunteers. They're, you know, at every community meal project that we're doing. They're a part of our, you know, summer transform Williamsport project where you go out and help neighbors and stuff. So we have a lot of all-star volunteers, but none are are really being entrusted, empowered, or, you know, taking advantage of ability to be a little more central or vocal in the actual, you know, faith building elements of the community, whether that's, you know, leading Bible studies, youth groups, or doing something on Sunday morning services. Um, We're seeing a little of that come in over the past, probably about five years. I think the church and, you know, its current leadership is, is doing a great job at making that an opportunity. But I think for such a long time, the American church has not really allowed for that to be a reality that it's still kind of like this slow incremental process of a laity being incremental and crucial in the actual church leadership. But just through my studies of like how churches is reformed and, and, you know, in history and also how it's shaping up right now, unless we allow for that power shift to occur, whatever changes happen now, not just through COVID, but just in general, like we're, we're going through a turbulent time of, of change in the church. Any of these right. changes are just going to give rise to a similar looking structure where, you know, you have, you know, the power, the influence in certain hands that are declared worthy by a piece of paper, um, which I'm not knocking that particular system, but I am knocking the, the few holding the influence and the power over many people. Um, and, and that's that's a tenuous situation because a lot of people want that to be a reality. People want to be a congregant who doesn't have responsibility. 
Right. So, so many multiple facets, but I'm hoping that this COVID quarantine, you know, shut down everything provides opportunity for people to awaken to a desire to be a more influential part of their faith community. Right. A a valid voice in the community. I, I'm definitely picking up what you're throwing down. Um, I think it's really interesting. I don't know, particularly with my experience with institutional religion, with, um, with the church, big C church, um, it very much feels like, uh, a part of our consumer society where, you know, you're coming to this place for a service, for a good, for some sort of product. Mm -hmm. Um, For some people, that's a balm that says, as long as you meet this checklist, you know, you'll be fine. You're, you've got your golden ticket to heaven for other people. It's this service that provides them an opportunity to give in service to other people. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of different things that bring people into a church building or into a faith community, but it is very much mirroring our society where a lot of the things that we participate in, at least in America, it's all consumer driven where Mm -hmm. you, you are providing either time or energy or money, and then you're being provided some form of service. Um, and then like the hierarchy of that system is there are a few people with power at -hmm. the top who make the decisions. And then everyone else is just kind of like mingling and not necessarily either wanting responsibility or not being able to take any sort of responsibility because it's being taken away from them. Um, so, I mean, like in all those respects, I, at least I can track, you know, how we got here. It's Mm -hmm pretty easy to see when we're organizing our society as a whole around that sort of system. Yeah. I really like how you say that it's reflective of our culture. You know, we have this Christian trope of we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. The reality is, I mean, to make a a message of hope and truth and love contextual to a degree, we have to meet the culture where it's at and whether we like it or not, the church has been shaped definitively by the culture that it's in. And this has been the case since church has existed. You know, we see that in the Roman period, like how dramatic of a shift occurred in the 300s, 400s, as Christianity became uh, transitioned from persecuted and enslaved and, you know, killed or whatever to global power, you know, wielding religion. You know, how dramatic of a shift was that? It It was because of the culture that it was in. It caused structural changes, which caused you know, personal faith changes as well, because it's all one ecosystem. And so my hope is that we can make some changes now that will will help affect personal lives. You know, people through quarantine, they're at home, their routines are being disrupted, they're spending more time with their family. And I think some people are having moments where they're starting to realize things that were once important to them or that should have been important to them. People are realizing things like the, uh, the, the, I don't want to say fragility, but the fragility of life, you know, it's almost like this Ecclesiastes moment of, Oh man, there's, there's an end to this life. There is a limited amount of time to be with the people I love. There is something more than myself that's in control because right now we're feeling out of control. You know, our, our control systems are disrupted. And so I hope that this produces a culture which influences the church that we can also learn that 
we're not in control and we can um, keep our eyes on the things that are important. Mm-hmm. What are what are the things that are important? Wow, in your mind, love. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, I'm not paying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I was wondering, like, man, what should we what should we talk about today? Because there's so much that I find fascinating, and you know, I have had a lot of conversations over the decades, uh, and then I I looked at the the wild, messy, infinite love title. I'm like, man, that that's a good title, but like, what the heck does that mean? Right. And so part of me is like thinking about COVID and and the rebirth of a definition of love that can change our personal lives. And I pulled a book off the shelf that I haven't read much of yet. And it's called A Theology of Love. Um, I have it right here. It's by uh, Mildred Winkcoop. That's how you spell her last name, I think, right there. And it's on (laughs) Wesleyan love. So you're pretty familiar with John Wesley. He was 18th century founder of United Methodism really powerful guy but this book is a commentary on his view of love and it's redefining love to fit more of what you're going for with your podcast this wild messy infinite kind of divine nature of things love rather than i love bacon or you know this this kind of popular theory of what the word love can be and one of the things that she said in her book was that wesley did something extremely powerful by recalling the biblical idea of love and holiness as one thing or as one thing characterizing the other. There's no separate nature between love and holiness. And there's a relationship which makes love bring holiness down to humility and stops it from being an anger or or an, uh, an arrogance, which I think a lot of our Western religion has inherited this holiness, which is characterized by arrogance. It's I belong here and you don't kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we're experiencing a redefinition of love where, you know, I don't belong here either, but I'm here because of Jesus Christ. And so we get to invite other people into that as well because of love. We understand love and our holiness has changed. So right. I'm excited for the future of not just you know our culture, but our church as well as we begin to awaken into a, a deeper understanding of what wild, messy, infinite love looks like, as opposed to these things, like you said, we, we're in this consumeristic culture, these things that we've purchased to feed our superficial desires. Um, and so now that we have been rid of our superficial desires for a period of time, we're getting to feed the desires of peace and calm and shalom and relationship. And I hope that sticks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many people have suddenly gotten a zoom license like you were talking about how many people have gotten a zoom license and are all of a sudden like having video chats with their families every single week yeah. I, I mean like i don't know about you but like i i mean i it's not that i don't talk to my parents but it's not necessarily like i'm calling them every single day or calling them every single week whereas now like it feels almost like we're more connected than ever even though we're not able to be in the same physical space and that's not necessarily to disregard physical space um you know like being physically with someone is impactful being physically with a faith community is absolutely impactful and it's important but it's not the benchmark of what relationship building is Mm. and Sorry, I'm just sort of going on a tangent, but going back to what you were talking about with Wesley and love and holiness and how they interact with one another, one of the ways that I think I talk about that is like 
we live in this paradox of being absolutely divinely special. We are absolutely 100% unique, beautiful, special beings on this planet. But at the same time, we're not very special at all because we're all sharing this whole thing Mm -hmm. together. It's not just about me. So like talking about how love brings holiness into this humility where, you know, we are bearers of the divine spirit. We are bearers of Christ. We are bearers of love. We are absolutely special, holy people. But at the same time, I'm not any better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. I'm not any higher or more pronounced than anyone else. We're all sort of intermingled in this same pot together, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Love is is a recognition of that uniqueness that you're talking about, that individuality, without placing an elevation as a part of it. It's so easy to say, this person has more X, Y, and Z than that person, therefore they are elevated above that person. Well, that's not love, that's economics. You know, whether, yeah, no matter what system it might be, if, if that person's more talented or richer or whatever. But love is recognizing you have X, Y, and Z, I have, you know, ABC, so let's be partners in community and create some fuller alphabet of, you know, of beauty. And right. It's awesome. It's, it's synergy, right? One plus one equals three or more. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that's high level math, by the way, people. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that I, beyond my opinion, right? But there's a vulnerability in that as well. Because once you live into that system, then gone are the opportunities to say, because I know more or because I have more, therefore I can control you who has less or knows less. And so there's a vulnerability in surrendering your place as somebody who could be elevated over somebody else. And it, it takes a step back. It takes a desire to want to step back from being in what you and I would maybe deem as the superficial or the worldly and realizing that there's, like we were talking about before, the, the finiteness and finality of life. You know, you can't take it with you when you go is kind of like the trope. Uh, mm-hmm. But the reality is there is nothing in this world that can change your status when we come beyond this world, you know, whatever life after death might look like, there is an equality there, we believe, uh, that is determined by God, not by us. We don't determine who is higher or lower in uh, the afterlife. And so why should we project that on one another here? Right. Um, I think going off of the vulnerability piece, it's also a vulnerable thing to say, I don't know that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we do have this... I don't know, almost this innate fear that of acceptance, this innate fear of being um, worthy. So if we don't know something, if we don't have a particular skill, there's this fear that if I don't have this, I'm not going to be accepted. Um, so we have this sense of we just need to fake it until we make it or um, or it's it's completely blocked off from your awareness until someone brings it up. But it takes vulnerability to enter into that space of, I don't know, I don't have the answers, I don't have that ability, I don't have what I need to be able to accomplish this task or, you know, like, whatever, whatever that might be. It does take vulnerability with yourself, it takes vulnerability with other people, 
um, when you're living in community with other people, that's, that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that is also because we live in, to get back talking about society again, we live in a society that's very linear where it's just like this upward trend where you just keep growing, you keep getting better, you keep perfecting, you keep, you know, like climbing the mountain, so to speak, Mm -hmm. whether you're talking about the economic mountain or the spiritual mountain or the communal mountain or whatever, whatever your mountain is, we're continually climbing it, but taking that vulnerable step to say, no, I have deficiencies. It, it breaks that linear aspect and it, it does make it more ethereal, more circular, more, it's it's not as comfortable for us because we are stuck in this linear pattern of well we're mm-hmm. continually you know working up whereas in reality life is much more well you take a couple steps back you move forward you move to the side you move to the other side someone carries you for a while you're carrying other people like it's not mm-hmm. a, just a straight narrow path what you're saying is so good. It reminds me of my younger self, which was not that long ago. I, you remember my uh, 2005 Honda Civic? It was a manual, like yeah, old yeah. bucket car. Um, it was not that fast, but it was a manual. And so you're talking about this linear path where we feel like we're always going on an upward trend. And what sprung to mind was just, I, I remember when I got that speeding ticket, when you were in the car for it, <laughs> there was, there was a, a realization that, well, hold on, why was I going that fast in like a 45? And I started paying attention to like my driving a little more after that. That's what speeding tickets, I guess, are supposed to do for you. But <laughs> I realized that there was some, some drive inside of me, no pun intended, that made me want to go from first gear to second gear to third gear to fourth gear to fifth gear. And I felt like if I wasn't accelerating, I wasn't moving at all. And so I felt like if I was in a certain speed zone and I was stuck in third or fourth gear, I wasn't really moving or accomplishing something or getting to where I wanted to go because I wasn't climbing the gears. I wasn't ascending to the next rank. There wasn't this idea of content where I'm at and I'll get there when I get there. It was Mm -hmm. unless I am improving, unless I'm going faster than I was before, I'm not actually going at all. And so it's, it's again, you know, we're talking about vulnerability a lot to understand that it's okay to be at a comfortable pace. It's okay to not continually expand or to grow or to get faster. There's a vulnerability in that because what you're saying is I don't actually have control over my speed or when I get where I get. Uh, And what's really important is being able to dwell where you're at in the journey and to learn Mm -hmm. to grow in the journey rather than I want to be at, you know, from A to B as quick as possible. Right. And I think, I think that's an important aspect too, because when a lot of people think of growth, growth is absolutely a good thing. But when people think of growth, they think of, well, getting from point A to point B and meeting Mm -hmm. those accomplishments and getting that dopamine hit of, I did it. I accomplished something. That's a very, I mean, that's a very, that can be a very good thing, but growth oftentimes is not just that point A to point B. It is that 
that death, that rebirth, that tough process of like going through the harder aspects of your life, going through a difficult moment, going through all this other stuff, you know, being vulnerable, going through those messy aspects of love, messy aspects of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I know you and I are both big fans. Um, I just brought up, it's from his, uh, the four loves book. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've read that. I haven't actually read the whole thing, um, but I'm just going to read the quote real quick. It says to love at all is to be vulnerable, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And so you're talking about different types of growth. And going from point A to point B is great for our own selfishness, our our casket of ambition. But you can't drag other people with you from point A to point B and expect them to experience the same kind of growth if they started at a different point A. It'll cause them damage. So if if we're serious about becoming a loving community, you know, whether it's micro community or global community, we have to shed this idea of growth is going to make me accepted because it's not about us being accepted. It's about us accepting others and saying, I will, I will sacrifice my point A to point B growth so that I can journey with other people from wherever they are to wherever we need to be as a community. Mm-hmm. And that's vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's displayed as weakness. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in your estimation then is that what has caused almost the stagnancy at least within christian faith communities this this feeling of we need to get from point a to point b we aren't necessarily being vulnerable with each other we're not being vulnerable with ourselves um you know is that where more fundamentalist type of theologies come where people are literally like ham-fisting the bible and like Mm -hmm. squeezing it tight and like not not asking any questions any questions that are brought up you know you're cast out of the community essentially um you know that's where the stagnancy is coming from that's where Mm -hmm. this this unwillingness to change or this unwillingness to reevaluate the way things are you know this this seeming desire for status quo um type of mentality is where do you think that's coming from it's a way but my big grade to be honest that's a big question i have a lot of i have a lot of thoughts as to what might contribute to that i i hesitate in saying that there's any one particular right, right, source. Right, right. i think if there was one particular source it would just be like human brokenness you know, in general, and that's not very helpful. I think that stagnation, that fear of change, that desire to see status quo comes from kind of what we've been talking about with this point A to point B. Like you were saying, it it does relate back to that because what that provides us is control. And humanity, not just Christianity, but humanity wants control. We see this in our fight for, uh, you know, green earth practices. People who are making buttloads of money off of oil or plastics or whatever, they're going to sacrifice a lot of control 
to believe in this vision of a sustainable earth. And a lot of people along with them are going to have to sacrifice control on a personal level, on a business level, on a you know career level. And so it's the same within the church is we've created a business and that's not inherently a negative thing. You know, people have to eat, people have to have buildings, we have to turn lights on. There's nothing wrong with giving money to a church so that they can support the missions. But what that does do is it creates a vulnerability for something negative, not a good vulnerability. It's a vulnerability for people to become enslaved to the perpetuation of that machine, that business machine. And so mm-hmm. rather than being able to say, okay, this is what the gospel actually is. This is what divinity actually wants us to be a part of. This is what God community looks like. We can't ask those questions unless we're also tagging onto those questions uh, practical factors of how does it help us turn the lights back on or how does it help us keep the doors open or how does it help increase the numbers of people we have in our our pews and so there's going to be a relinquishing of our control over that business system and that's going to feel like dying because it is dying and it's going to mean that we have to 100% trust that God is actually an active participant in his church because we cannot sustain the church We've seen for the past 50 years Christianity, especially mainland Protestantism, decrease in North America. It's decreased in Europe. It's We're, we're not going to save the church. But God will not abandon the church. You know, divinity will never stop being a community of love. How do we allow the branches that need to be pruned to be pruned? And how do we cultivate new life fitting the culture but not not being subject subject the excuse me subjugated <laughs> to the the culture so the way that we were talking earlier that we've become a reflection of our culture this this consumeristic culture how do we become relevant to the culture without becoming a product thereof and that's mm-hmm. i think the big question that's going to involve a lot of death and surrender of that control so that we can do things like figure out what it means to to redefine love in our communities right um, I like the way that you frame that as it is a death. Um, I think for a lot of people, death is something that's scary. Uh, death is something that's avoided at all costs. And it's not talking about just like physical death. It's, you know, like, because death represents change. Death represents out with the old, in with mm-hmm. something else. Something else is going to take that place or that space. And that is really scary for a lot of people. Um, and I think, I think you're right that this death does represent change. This death does represent something that a lot of people do fear. And that's, that's one of the reasons why people are resistant to reevaluating, because if you have to reevaluate, then you might have to say, well, something that I'm doing isn't right. Um, something about this isn't working. Um, something has to die and something new has to take its place. But if I don't know what that is, if I don't have the control over it, then, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's something that I don't necessarily want to be a part of. So I'm just going to keep pouring into this machine that has ultimately worked for me. And I think, I don't know, I think that's another interesting aspect, not just about the church, uh, but about our society as well, is um, there are a lot of people that this sort of system has worked for. Mm-hmm. So they're invested in keeping it going because it works for them. Like you said, the the big oil industries, they're making tons of money and they have 
outrageous amounts of influence and power and wealth and control, why, if this is a system that's worked for them, why would they necessarily want to give that up? Um, Outside of that realization of, oh, this is something that we're all sharing. And this is something that's not just about me, but it's not necessarily an easy step to get to that place. It does take something outside of yourself. It does take a community coming into your life. It does take, uh, to, for lack of a better term, it does take divine intervention where you mm-hmm. do come to realize that, oh, this is something that's outside of myself. Yeah. And that's exactly what I hope the the good amidst the hardship of this lockdown quarantine stuff will be is is kind of that shock that outside factor for a lot of people to say oh wait there's there's still time to recognize what my place is in community and it's easy for you know the hustle and the bustle of life to say i have x y and z responsibilities this is what my realm is and if anyone gets in my way well then i'm just doing business right it doesn't matter the collateral damage but community means that there is flourishing of life at the expense of no one else's life. And that's just not how America works right now. (laughs) What? You're kidding me. No way. (laughs) Right. And so call me a heretic, but I would love to see people awaken to the realization that my flourishing will be increased when somebody else's flourishing is also increased. Because I think that's true. It's, it's not logical, but it's true. I don't know right. if that's the best way to frame that, but it's, it's this divine reality, if you will, that when I get to serve my friend Eric and I see him flourishing, there is something about my life, my quality of life that is significantly better. Another C.S. Lewis quote would be, uh, there is a f- part of friendship that is unnecessary. And it's like philosophy or it's like art. It has no survival value. And it's actually one of the things that gives value to survival. So friendship doesn't help us survive. It is what we survive for. Right. You know, love is not something that's going to help us survive. It's, it's what we survive for. And so when your flourishing increases, so too does mine. It's not by depriving you that I will get ahead. It is when we all get ahead. One of my favorite biblical text that talks about this idea is um, Jesus's parables about the kingdom of heaven and what the kingdom of heaven is like. So one of my favorites is when he talks about the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that's mixed into dough. I mean, like, yes, yeast is in and of itself, the substance that you're able to see, that you're able to touch, that you're able to feel. But then when you mix it in with bread dough, you're no longer able to see that substance. It meshes with that which is around it. Um, and in in that space where it's able to be nurtured and grown with the dough, with the air, with the oxygen, it grows exponentially and it creates something that is um, something that sustains other people. Um, or like the mustard seed that's planted in the ground. When it's planted in the ground, sure, it's this small thing, but it sheds its skin, it mm-hmm. grows exponentially, and it creates a place of shelter for other organisms and other beings. And that's, to me, that's what it is that you're talking about. It's something that grows exponentially, um, even though it takes that moment of dying, it takes that moment of letting go of yourself, letting go of necessarily your desires and that's 
I say that with the caveat of, you know, it is important to take care of yourself. It is important to know what your passions and your desires are. It's important to be aware of all that kind of stuff. But it's mm-hmm. it's the same thing as that paradox of, yes, we're all special, but we're all also in this together. Yeah, you, you touched on something really helpful for moving what we're talking about into pragmatism into reality right we've had this kind of really really great systematic conversation but then there's like oh well what do i actually do with it kind of thing and so when you're talking about being aware of your own talents desires passions being a part of part of a community isn't disregarding those for the sake of others i think being a part of a community is being empowered empowering one another to harness them for the betterment of the whole community. And so learning what your passions are and leaning into them. And so this is another biblical ideal of you have this abundance of food. And let's say there are two trees in particular where this food grows upon. One is a tree of life and one is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. You have this abundance of food. What are you going to choose to do with it? You know, are you going to choose to seize it for yourself and absorb and to not trust that there's going to be food for you later. So you're going to take it now and you're going to take that knowledge and that, that place of God for yourself, or are you going to trust and love and share and, and grow food for everyone instead of seizing it for yourself, allowing it to be provided to you in its own time. And it's, you know, it's that biblical idea of we have the ability to choose to use what we have for good or for evil. Um, you know, dark side of the force or the light side of the force, you know, both are, <laughs> both are force and both are, are powerful and both are, you know, potentially destructive or potentially creative. And so we can choose and help others choose the path of life. And and that's something that's really been hard for me lately is figuring out what it means to walk alongside people who don't care or don't want to be loving or don't want to be a part of a community, people who are broken or hurt or wounded or just not there yet. What does it mean to meaningfully help them see the value of being in community, not just for them, but for everyone, rather than, you know, trying to hate them or or ignore them or, you know, shove scripture down their throat or, you know, all those unhelpful things. Right. And that's just, that's where we get to the messy part of love, right? So I don't know if you have any wisdom for me there, but man, that's, that's struggle for me. I think, I think when I think about, you know, how we share this love with others, um, I know, I know for me, Christian terminology, theological verbiage, you know, the, the practices and the rhythms of the church calendar, all of those things are things that are ingrained in me and make sense to me and are something that has been helpful for me. Um, but I think where it really starts is, you know, being authentic with someone. So being authentic with the fact that there are some people out there who've had the church or religion or theology or the Bible or God even use as a weapon to control them, to influence them, to subjugate them, to oppress them, you know, whatever that might be. And that's, that's something that is harmful. That's something that causes scars that causes wounds and being authentic with someone to be able to understand where those wounds are and help find some sense of healing, help son find some vocabulary or some piece of connection that allows you to have that sort of 
that back and forth with one another because mm-hmm. ultimately love is not necessarily something that you're only giving of yourself. It's a two way street. It's something that you give, but at the same time are receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think it's finding that point of connection. So maybe that point of connection is, you know, like you and me, we love age of empires. That's a point of connection for us. Um, for other people, it's providing some sort of service. So the church mm-hmm. that I used to work out, um, they have a food pantry that is run for, through their building every Tuesday evening. That's a point of connection because they're able to meet that very real physical need of people in their community. Um, for others, it might mean, you know, having those more difficult theological discussions where you might not necessarily agree with them or having those difficult political discussions where you're not necessarily agreeing with them, but that's all part of the process and actually forming some authentic connection with someone, because I think ultimately that's where it begins is that sense of connection because we, at least for me and sort of this podcast as a whole, we all share this divine spirit. We all share Mm -hmm. this, this divine spirit of love that connects us in unfathomable ways. Um, but it's it's getting into well, what is that connection between me and you, and how can that connection foster a relationship? How can that connection foster me revealing what this wild, messy, infinite love is all about? Whether you're using Christian terminology or not, like mm-hmm. it, because I don't know. For me, the vocabulary isn't necessarily as important as the ideas that are being shared there, and the very real feeling that occurs in that catalytic moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for some people, quite honestly, if you bring up God or you bring up Christianity or you bring up religion, that's instantly cutting off the connection for them. And that's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I, I listened to the Bible Project podcast as well. And I think there was a, a moment that really stuck with me. I think uh, it was Tim that shared exactly what you're talking about. We, we used to think that if you... I think he was saying, if you stood up on a bus and said, I believe in God, and amidst a bunch of strangers, we would say, oh, wow, look at that evangelism. Like, look at how they're sharing that faith. But when you get into, like, people's contexts and their histories, then that that verbiage is loaded. And that might not be, you know, evangelism at all. You know, the, the purpose behind evangelism is getting to share the love and the gift that is Christ. Right, and, absolutely. And if they are hurt or wounded or don't even know what you're talking about, like that's not actually evangelism. You're not, you're not, a, you're not transmitting the ideas behind the vocabulary. So we do need to move out behind our our loaded terms and our Christianese, if you will. But right. yeah, I think that holds for pretty much every group of people, not just Christians. But if you want to discuss politics, you know, one political party is going to view certain terms with a lot of things behind it different than another political party or any other religion, what have you, we have to learn how to listen before we just respond with our own loaded terms so that we can see how the other person feels and acts and speaks and, and what they mean by the words they say, rather than just assuming uh, their verbiage is linked in my formula to being contrary to my own. Therefore I will fight them. Right. Exactly. Like for things such as, political ideologies. I mean, like a lot of those places are found out of very real experiences. I know, Mm -hmm. 
Um, for instance, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on the podcast already, but me and my parents disagree on how healthcare should be practiced and how we provide healthcare for people. Um, part of that is very much due to my parents' very real lived experience of my dad owning a small business and, you know, having the financial pressures of mm. Obamacare, well, which while I freely support that, I also understand that that's not necessarily something that was easy for them, or that's not necessarily something that was helpful or beneficial for them. So like finding, finding Mm -hmm. that piece of understanding is absolutely important. Uh, And then you mentioning the Bible project. Um, Another, another thing that I think about a lot, um, and it's probably because of my theological background and my biblical background but you know what's what is important about the biblical text um you know ask yourself what is important about this biblical text that i'm talking about is it is it important that adam and eve actually physically lived or is it important that this story is talking about how god's image is breathed into all things is this is this story about isaiah um railing against the king of israel or the king of judah important because isaiah did it or is it important because it speaks to a deeper truth about speaking Mm. out against injustice um you know like you didn't you didn't necessarily see Jesus going up to Gentiles and all of a sudden quoting tons and tons of scripture to them. Jesus was going and sharing a meal with them or meeting them at the village center or essentially meeting them where they were at authentically mm-hmm. um, without necessarily any ulterior motives of, well, I'm just doing this so that I can win them over to my side. I think that's another important aspect is being being real with yourself and checking what you're bringing into this conversation or bringing into this relationship at the door, realizing, you know, am I coming at this with ulterior motives? Am I entering into this conversation to listen or am I entering into this conversation to sway them to my side of thinking? Because that's, I mean, that's something that's important to realize. Um, because if ultimately, mm-hmm. if you're just going in so that you can change someone, that's not going to be particularly fruitful in many cases. Absolutely. Yeah. I really appreciate what you had to say about the different strata of truths, the the deeper truths, and then some different kinds of truths of did this happen or not? I, I am at the point right now in my, my walk that I firmly believe that every human being should study the Bible because it is incredible and it's beautiful and there's so much to it. But I believe that because by reading the stories, I have come to grapple with those deeper truths that have transformed the way I think and live and act, whether or not I necessarily believe in the same terminology or whether or not I believe that they actually happened historically or not. Those things are important, but they're not important in the way that the deeper truths are. So they're important because it's it's good to study what happened in history. It's good mm-hmm. to study these historical facts, but they're not important in the way of, if you also don't believe that they're history, I will no longer love you. Like that's not the kind of importance that they carry. Right. Exactly. Um, and I don't think that's the importance of what the writers were going for either. It's wisdom literature. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. For meditation for sure. Right. Right. Exactly. But I think, I think all of that is 
just different examples of how we start framing that connection is, you know, like being, being vulnerable with yourself and realizing Mm -hmm. what am I bringing into this? What are the preconceived notions that I'm bringing into this? What is the specific vocabulary that I am using? um, And how does that line up with the other person that I'm connecting with or the community that I'm connecting with? Um, Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, you know, is it about winning them over to your side or is it about finding that point of connection on some deeper question of what it means to be human or what it means to be in community with other people or what it means to speak out against injustice or what it means to love other people or what it means to be authentic with other people or whatever, whatever else that connection might be or whatever else that question might be. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a very long way of talking about it, but. Right. Yeah. So I, I originally asked you, you know, for advice on what it means to like love people who don't want to be a part of the community or whatnot. And that spurred on some like really wonderful thoughts that I appreciate. And so what I hear underneath what we've been talking about, what you said, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a focus on listening so that we can engage the, the context of the people to who oh, we're, we're approaching yeah. and then learn how to love them in ways that are meaningful to them. And I really appreciate the way that you frame those things. And, and I want to not just let that be a conversation. Uh, so I, if I can ask you for a favor, if you can check in with me in like a week and see whether or not I have practiced loving somebody on their own terms, loving somebody in ways that are meaningful to them. Like this is, this is something that I have to practice and like be oh, intentional absolutely. about or else it will never leave the conversational realm. So I'd appreciate the accountability on that. Yeah, of course. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, one one practical way in which I have experienced this and why I think the institution of marriage is such an impactful institution is a marriage relationship is a relationship that causes you to meet someone else on their terms. Mm-hmm. Um, another Another type of relationship is a relationship with family. It causes you to be meeting them on their terms, meeting them where they're out because at least the way that our society is organized, there's not necessarily any way of getting out of that relationship. Um, Obviously there are breakdowns even in families, even in marriages um, for a multitude of reasons, but in practice, uh, the act of marriage, for example, the act of entering into a relationship with someone and saying, I'm going to be with you in the highs and the lows until death do we part. That's a very intentional commitment to say, there are going to be days where you are upset, where I say something wrong, where you say something wrong, and it causes me to be upset. There's going to be days where our visions for the future might not line up exactly 100%. There's going to be days where we argue. There's going to be days where we are totally in sync and totally in love. There's a whole host of emotions and a whole host of experiences that are all being pressed into that relationship. And to have a healthy marriage is to have the vulnerability and the humility to say, I am meeting you where you are at and you are meeting me where I am at. And through that process, that's how we're growing. Um, that's how that, that commitment and that love grows. I mean, looking back at my relationship with my wife, Liz, I mean, I love her more now than I 
ever have before. But at the same time, we've gone through a lot. And not mm-hmm. all of that was just like happy-go-lucky, cuddling in bed, smelling the roses, right. tra-la-laing through the meadow. There were plenty of tears. There were plenty of frustrations that have gone along with that. Um, but that that act of being there through all of that is what has helped us to grow mm-hmm. in deeper connection with one another. And to a certain extent, that's what I'm talking about with authentic connection with other people. It's being able to be vulnerable enough to say, I am here through any of it. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously there are instances where that connection might be unhealthy for you or for the other individual. And like, obviously it's not a one blanket over top of everything. It's not a one size fits all kind of relationship um, or way about living life with other people, but it's, it's that sort of mentality of, you know, I'm, I'm in this, I am in this, I am committed. I am intentional. This is not necessarily something where I'm just in this to get the benefits out of it. This Mm -hmm. is something that I'm in because it's helping both of us to grow and it's helping both of us realize something more about each other, about ourselves, about the way the world works, about relationship, about community, about God, about nature, about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's the important piece. Um, and I think, I think a lot of us do practice this in a lot of different ways, whether you're in a marriage relationship, whether you are doing something, doing some sort of work that you're really passionate about, whether you're in that sort of relationship with a family member or a close friend or, you know, whatever it might be, we're all doing this in some way, shape or form, but we're not necessarily aware to it. We're not necessarily as engaged with it as we possibly could be. Uh, because it is it is very much a shift in our lens or a shift in our thinking to say, you know, I'm shifting out of this place where I'm just kind of floating through life um, and sort of checking off the boxes of these are the things that I have to do in order to, um, you know, have this relationship um, to shifting to, you know, this is something that I'm very intentionally a part of. Um, right. So, I mean, at least, at least for me, you know, one of the things that I struggle with is being present, being mm-hmm. rooted in the here and the now, you know, I oftentimes get caught up with thinking about the future and where I'm going and where I'm headed. Other people are constantly thinking about the past and what's happened before. It's, it's a difficult practice to really be rooted in the intentionality of being here and now where we are at in this present moment. Mm-hmm. I really resonate with what, what you're saying about being present and not being in the future all the time. I, I find myself often nervous about you know the the coming weeks months years whatever it might be because my my relationship with god in those moments is indeed a transa- transactional love and like you've been saying for the past couple minutes love is not transactional that is affinity that is that is business love is covenantal and it's transformational it's transformational and it's covenantal. It is, it is a choice. And, and it's so hard to, I think, say that in our culture, we've been talking a lot about our culture, but because of this 
consumeristic mentality. When we describe love as covenant, love is transformational. Love is not about you. It, it becomes a choice. Love is a choice. It it loses its attractional value because in those choices, it doesn't seem magical. It doesn't seem desirable. It doesn't seem like, oh, if I'll fall in love and we'll be on beaches, like you're talking about, like the whole rest of our lives and it'll just be wonderful. And then, you know, that's, those are seeds in shallow soil and right. they, they burn out. And when we recognize love's intrinsic value for the well-being of all people, then the fact that love is a choice makes it so attractive. Once we understand what's behind that choice, it's a choice of giving up relationships that flare out because they're based on the wrong things. It's a choice of giving up selfishness because it leads to my isolation. It's a choice of giving up my life and flourishing at the expense of others because ultimately my flourishing will not lead me to an eternity of, of goodness. It'll lead me to having my rewards here and now and they'll flare out. And then where will I be? You know, it's, it's a choice of covenant to that community that i i just i think it's so attractive once we realize what's really underneath what's the deeper truth behind it you know right Beautiful. right it's something it's something that's participatory uh, the whole the whole world is participatory but mm-hmm. um and i mean like i said this is something that's not just like marriage relationships not everyone is married i can i can think of multiple friends that I had in high school where who weren't necessarily Christian. And I was fed this narrative of, I need to make them Christian. And that's, that's what the relationship revolved around. Mm -hmm. And those relationships ended up breaking down because instead of having the humility to say, I don't know to some of these tough questions, or instead of having the humility to say, you know, you do you, you do what is best for you or what is most healthy for you. I had this sense that, you know, you have to come and see it my way. I wasn't participating in what they were presenting Mm -hmm. to the table. I was only participating or choosing to act on what I was bringing to the table. Um, I think, I think that's another crucial aspect to practicing this is it's very similar to active listening, but you need to not only participate in what you're doing, but you also need to be participating in what the other person is throwing down onto the table as well. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very much a give and take relationship. And in that give and take, you are giving of yourself, you're losing of yourself, but you're also taking in something that is outside of you. Um, And to relate that back to Christian theology, it's very Trinitarian in the sense that the Trinity is this, these persons that are continually outflowing and Mm -hmm. inflowing peace and justice and love. It's this continual cycle of pouring out endlessly, but then also pouring into the other persons endlessly. And that's what a relationship is lo- of love is. It's almost like these two streams that are going back and forth, ebbing and flowing between the other. And that's mm-hmm. why you have um, to, to lean on the relationship of marriage once more. That's why you have these seasons of life where it feels like you are it almost feels like you're serving the your partner 
more so than they're serving you because they're going through something in their life and they are taking more from you. But then on the flip side, you have these instances where, you know, you're going through something hard and they're giving more of themselves to you than you're giving to them. And that's what the relationship is. It's a, it's a given flow and it's not always an equal given flow either. Cause mm-hmm. I think, I think that's another thing that a lot of people get hung up on. I know I get hung up on it is, well, it's not fair that I'm giving more of myself to this than they're giving to me. Um, and I, and that's where those caveats come in. That's where it's important to notice, you know, is this someone who's just really struggling or is this someone who's taking advantage of me and what I'm providing them? Because that's, I mean, if it's just someone taking advantage of you, it's not necessarily going to be productive and it can be harmful for both of you mm-hmm. um, in a lot of different ways. So, I mean, like it's, it's not just an, a give and take that's not always equal, but it's also something that continually needs to be reevaluated. It's something that you continually need to return to as well. Yeah. I think you're touching on a whole nother can of worms when you're talking about <laughs> uh, our falsehoods about, love or our desire to be in love to create a community of love can often lead us to perpetuating harm and and not just when somebody's taking advantage of us but we believe that love sometimes might almost need to be submissive and so we we make ourselves vulnerable which is good but then we make ourselves subjugated in that vulnerability which can really lead to some unhealthy behaviors and it's in the name of of love and reciprocity but it becomes polluted and perverted and and harmful and so it's such a fine balance and it does require practice and community and openness to be able to discern all right so what what diagnosis is this love relationship in right now what do we have going on and how do we correct it not not hopefully leading to a break you know, hopefully reconciliation can happen, but sometimes, unfortunately, it can't. Mm-hmm. Right. You're right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, just, just talking about this a little bit more, um, I think another, another of the important aspects, and the aspects of this are limitless. Um, so this is just like scratching, barely scratching the surface of what love is and how we practice it. But I think another aspect of it is this love relationship expands to more than just you and another person. It's something that encompasses your relationship with yourself. It's obviously something that encompasses your relationship with other people, but it also encompasses your relationship with the world. So the way that you practice this is essentially limitless. So you can practice this through following your passions and doing the interior work of your own life and figuring out what are the gifts and talents that I have to be able to share with the world? What are my hangups? What are the things that I've been struggling with? What are some of these wounds that need healing within my own life? You can practice this through being in relationship with other people. You can practice this through being in relationship with the planet, with nature, um, you know, people who get pets, that, that aspect of the relationship between a pet and the, the people who are taking care of this pet, um, you know, there's, there's a divine love that flows between that. And it's, it's all part of it. It's all like, I don't know, it's limitless. It's infinite. 
yeah, you're, you're touching on like a ripple effect of holistic health. That is so fascinating. And it's actually really similar to the Trinity. You, you mentioned Trinitarian doctrine before, but like my, my relationship with nature, if I have a nature deficiency, I can feel like a longing to be out in nature. I can feel like less awake or uh, I can feel less in tune with things, even if it's ever so slightly, and it has a ripple effect. If, if one of my relationships is hurting, it has a ripple effect. If I'm not getting enough sleep, if I'm not eating healthy, if I'm not, you know, if I, if my holistic health balance is out of balance, it's going to affect my ability to operate in ways of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and you know, self-control, all these ways, these ways we practice love and community. It's a holistic health kind of thing. And that's, it's like the power of our habits are so potent and they're hidden. You know, we, we don't feel that they're as potent as they are, but it can really just throw you off. That's what's so important about being able to like talk with somebody, whether it's a therapist or, you know, trusted friend or just be open about that so that they can say, oh, maybe X, Y, Z habit uh, needs to be altered or changed for your, your health, your better health. So you'll be able to contribute yeah. you know, and to be able to be receptive to love as well. Cause we close ourselves off when we're unhealthy. Absolutely. Um, I do have a question for you. We've we've talked about intentional loving relationships with other people. I would love to hear your thoughts on how you believe this could best be practiced practiced in a communal setting because one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is the faith community mm-hmm. uh, talking about, you know, local churches and that kind of stuff. How how do we begin interacting in this intentional loving relationship with a community as a whole. Um, you know, it's easy enough to say, well, I need to love myself or I need to love this very specific individual person. But then Mm -hmm. how do we start expanding that to the communal level? Yeah, actually that's a question that touches on much of what I am currently doing as a part-time job and in my (laughs) schooling and what I hope to be doing pretty much for the rest of my life. Uh, we we do this thing where we listen to our community. We try to listen to our community. And we identify, we're talking about contextualization a lot. So we identify the contextual mm-hmm. needs before we even talk about how can we love. Because if you live in Hollywood, you're going to have a lot uh, different needs than if you live in Myerstown, Pennsylvania, or, you know, uh, a really financially hurting community, wherever it might be, you know, depending on your context, you're going to have very different needs. And so since love is covenantal, it's not just a feeling, it is, it is action, it is practiced, it is back and forth. You have to understand the language through which you can speak love, through which you can act love in that community. And so I work with, uh, a Christian organization called Fresh Expressions a little bit. They've been teaching me a lot. I shouldn't say I work with them. I should say I've, I've been learning a lot from them. My goodness, they're <laughs> phenomenal people who have been studying this exact question for a long time. And we've been doing it here in Williamsport a little bit, is listening to our context, figuring out what language do they speak, proverbial language. How can we speak love to them? And then go to where they're at. So we don't expect people who aren't going to speak the language of the church to come into church, to be a part of that community. Instead, 
we bring community to them. And so this has looked like yoga church, like bar church, like rugby church, you know, whatever we end up naming it. In fact, Tuesday nights tonight, uh, we're recording on a Tuesday. Tonight, I'll be getting on a Zoom call, and one of my friends started a Whiskey in the Word group where people just hop on Zoom, pour themselves a glass of whiskey, and we talk about whiskey for 20 minutes, enjoying (laughs) the language that we all speak, right? That's an affinity we form around. And then we just talk about spirituality and faith and Bible verses and life. And and it's this, you listen to the people, you understand that they will form community around something like whiskey, but they won't form a vulnerability in their community around something like hymnals or structural Bible study. And so you bring the community to them. Step one, listen. Step two, bring it to them. Be flexible. Like you were talking about earlier, Jesus met people where they were at. And so this is imperative for Christianity to learn, but also outside of Christianity, just being a part of your community in meaningful ways in general, you have to first know what the needs are. Going back to a metaphor of of marriage, if, you know, your wife needs bread and milk and eggs from the grocery store and you go and you get (laughs) cheeses and bacon and you know whatever else like that's not going to help what your wife had in mind and so you you get what was on the list or whatever you you find out what the needs are so if you're running a business and you want to reach out to, to the community don't say well i have this great idea of you know putting together a square dancing party for the community and then just do it, go out and listen. And then you'll find out that what they really need is, you know, sponsoring a food pantry, or maybe they need people to sponsor like a different type of dance. Cause they don't like square dancing, whatever it might be. <laughs> you listen to the people first and then you allow yourself to go there and walk alongside with them rather than expect them to come to you. You can, you can do the latter model all you want and try to do it in attractional ministry or an attractional event, but you're always going to be fighting tooth and nail to fight with those people's other needs, because this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If, if they have a, a need that is greater than the one that you are meeting, then they will not be at your thing, right? right? It's, it's just how it's going to work out. Yeah. And so you listen to what their needs are, if you want to yeah. be a part of that community. Uh, so that's kind of like a, a more vague general answer to yeah, how to be. A, yeah, that's a great answer. Work. Personally, it can work on uh, church level, on business level. You can just go out and walk in your neighborhood and talk to the people who are your neighbors. That's a very hard thing to do in America these days. We don't do it very often. <laughs> go talk to your neighbors, get to know them, uh, and then let it be organic from there. Um, not everything has to be a program. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I really, I really like the way that you frame that um, because it does create this this understanding of flexibility it creates this understanding of it's not just one way or one size fits all which it's been for a very long time it's been hymnals it's been gathering on sunday morning it's been listening to a 10-minute sermon it's been singing another hymn and then taking some grape juice and bread and going home and watching football like that's that's been the formula for so long and it's almost like there's this realization that's coming to the surface of saying, 
hey, maybe this formula isn't working for everyone. And maybe we do need to start engaging with those different languages and those different needs. Because that's, I mean, ultimately, that's where the exponential growth happens, right? So like the the example that you shared about the cheeses and bacon rather than milk, eggs, and bread, um, you're getting these cheeses and bacon, but if you would have participated in the language that your wife was giving you, then that could have resulted in your birthday cake, you know, like, like, which so many people would be so overjoyed to have. And, but if you're not participating it, you're missing out on those fruits. You're missing out, you're missing out on the potential. Um, I mean, like how many, how many success stories have you heard of people who have been like, homeless or living paycheck to paycheck and then they get the resources that they need and all of a sudden they become this huge success story um Mm -hmm. you know that's that's only in part because someone is meeting those needs and providing them those resources and taking the time to foster and nurture that growth in them Mm -hmm. and conversely when we it, it doesn't actually come from a place usually in our heart that that communicates this, but when we ignore those needs, when we're not listening and we say, I want to go be a part of our community or I want to go do X, Y, and Z, we do the thing. And then what it communicates is what I want to do is more important than your actual needs. Right. Right. That's what I have chosen to do. So get on my level, get on my terms or sucks for you. Right. That's what it's communicating. Yeah, exactly. And that's not what we intend because Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing anything at all. Why would we bother if that's what our heart was really intending? But there's this disjunction, this miscommunication where we're not slowing down and taking the time to get to know people. And instead, we, like you said, we do the one size fits all. That's what we know. So that's what we replicate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Did you have any other thoughts on reformation at all? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, oh yeah, actually pertaining to what we just talked about, um, listening to people as people, I'll share a story about my studies in undergrad on reformation. Uh, I did a paper that I originally called reform, rinse and repeat, uh, very terrible title. But the idea was if you take a look at Christian history from Jesus to now, you can see the big portions of Reformation. If you read Phyllis Tickle, she'll say that every 500 years, the church has had a rummage sale, a big Reformation. <laughs> so we've had Jesus, then we had Gregory the Great and the big monasticism thing in the 500s, and then we had the Great Schism in you know 1050-something, and then we had the Protestant Reformation, and now we have the modern Reformation, what's going on in the church right now. And so there is these re- reoccurring periods of Reformation in the church. And so I was writing this paper, and my, my idea was you can take a look at the cause and effect relationships of, of what has happened in those reformations. You can distill it down to essentially a formula, a cycle, and you can see that cycle, that formula of cause and effect reoccurring in every single period of reformation in the Christian church. And using that, we can apply it to our reformation right now, and you can see where we're at in that cycle what characteristics were repeating from past reformations for the end of not making the same mistakes we've made in the past. If we're able to see where we're headed 
using past models will be able to see our history and not repeat it, right? Those who ignore their history are condemned to repeat it, that kind of thing. Right. That was my whole plan. And so I wanted, I wanted this formula of church structure. How do we alter church structure so that we can guard ourselves against another giant crap hits the fan session of reformation. And I was almost done with it. And I was sitting in the office of GW Hawks, one of my professors who was helping me finish it and, you know, kind of, uh, he, he was on my like committee board. He was helping me form it and finish it. And for those of we, you who don't know, Ben, by the way, is hella smart. Just so you know, <laughs> I got just smart enough to act like I'm smart. <laughs> but I'm, I'm finishing the paper and I'm sitting there in the office and he's like, yeah, your, your title's not really finished or it's not really matching the end of, of your paper, your conclusions, because I got stuck in figuring out what the actual practical applications for reformation are. What should the church do now to stop making the same mistakes as made in the past? And essentially, you know, you can talk all you want about shifting church structures, but what it boiled down to was be better Christians and love people, right? And stop sucking. And that's not a helpful thing to put at the end of your paper. Exactly. That's not a helpful thing to put at the end of your paper. And so GW Hawks is like, yeah, you're not, that, that's not the title of your paper. That's not the paper you wrote. And so we ended up changing the title to Reformation of the Heart instead of Reformers and Repeat. Because if, we're, if we want to change our structures, what, you know, we can talk about church structures, we can talk about family structures. That's another fascinating conversation, how we repeat our family structures, our systemic family issues. Family structures, church structures, business structures. If we want to change it to allow flourishing, it always is going to have roots in our own hearts. And so we have to focus on ourselves, the people around us, before we can even approach conversations of reformation. And so my message of you know, hope to the people wanting to see reformation wherever they are at, whether it's in the church or not, is you can absolutely change everything you think might be unchangeable. But it's going to involve a lot of work on the inside, as well as, you know, just learning that love we're talking about this whole time, that vulnerable, mm-hmm. I am not God, I am willing to do the work kind of, kind of experience. And that's, that's tough, but it's so necessary because nothing can change before that changes. Right. And all, it, everything, everything always starts at step one and step one is always you. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I love that. I love that. What else do you have for me? Do you have anything else for me? I'm all tapped out. That's literally everything I know <laughs> in my whole life. <laughs> he is now brain dead. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I the paper and then we can talk again if you want the paper that I wrote. Uh, yeah. I think yeah, you like it, maybe. But yeah, I'd love to hear your absolutely. thoughts. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man, this has been incredible. I've loved this. We should do this again sometime. Yeah, dude, seriously. We should talk more often. Yeah. Yeah. After this. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your thoughts and your perspective. It is beautiful and it is much needed in the world around us. So thank you so much. Thanks. Um, I really appreciate that. We normally end the podcast by saying peace and love, y'all. So would you be willing to take us out? Absolutely. <laughs> peace and love, y'all.